Well, good morning, church family. If you have your copy of God's Word, let me invite you to take it and find the book of 1 Corinthians. And as you find the book of 1 Corinthians, I'd like to draw your attention to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. When you find chapter 7, you can locate the 12th verse, whether you have a printed copy as I strongly prefer and hope that you bring to church with you, or you have a device on your phone that has a Bible app, I would love for you to be looking at your copy of God's Word as we open it this morning. Thank you for allowing me the freedom at times to be gone. I know last week, Dr. Gene Fant blessed you immensely. I'm grateful for his ministry and what he does as the president of North Greenville University. But it's always a blessing for me to rejoin you and to have the opportunity today by God's grace and through his mercy, unmerited favor to preach to you from his word. For those of you who are guests of ours, I know that you've already been welcomed. Of course, I welcome you as well. And I also welcome you into this sermon series called Managing Marriage. Yet today is a bit unique. Uh, we're walking through the book of 1 Corinthians verse by verse, line by line, chapter by chapter. It is the pattern of the preaching ministry here at Church at the Mill. And, and for the most part, chapter 7 is about issues related to marriage, which is why this series is called Managing Marriage. Now, you don't often hear of the topic of marriage preceded with the word managing. In fact, I've often joked with you, we don't want someone to ask us about our marriage and our response be, well, I'm managing. We don't want that. We want you to thrive in your marriage, and we do want to celebrate romantic love and kindness toward one another and commitment and covenant. But actually, one of the ways we define the word manage in the English language is to treat with care in order to achieve one's purpose. We talk about that in a, a transitive verb sense. So, for example, if you say, she managed to turn that company around, or he managed to raise those children up to be wonderful adults after losing his wife. When we use the word manage that way, we're saying it as a compliment. And we know anything that's valuable must be managed. We pay attention to it. So by default, if marriage is valuable in God's eyes, then we ought to make sure we manage, that we care for, that we hope that it achieves God's purpose. However, something happens unique in chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians. Right along verse 12, all the way down, really, or verse 17, all the way down through verse 24, Paul actually leaves the subject of marriage and speaks to a greater topic, one that has application in marriage and singleness, but actually has application for every area of our life. So this morning, by God's grace, I'd like to preach to you about the power of being fully present. This sermon is based on our theology. Let me explain our theology. Yesterday's gone. Ain't a thing in the world you can do about it. It's gone. You can learn from the lessons of yesterday. If you failed the Lord, you can be forgiven if you come to him for your mistakes of yesterday. You can rejoice in the blessings of yesterday, but yesterday is gone. Tomorrow's not promised. We're not promised tomorrow. In fact, we have no scriptural evidence that we ought to live our life with the full confidence that tomorrow comes. Now, you've often heard it said, and it's a bit of a cliche, but it's powerful. I may not know what tomorrow holds, but I know who holds tomorrow. And so I trust that God is fully in tomorrow and that tomorrow is fully under his control. But as much as it depends on me, I have no control over tomorrow and I have no guarantee that tomorrow will come. 
So if you'll allow me to trace our logic for just a moment. If yesterday's gone and tomorrow is not promised, then right where you set is the most important day of your life. To be fully present. I was reminded of this recently. I am not a huge Major League Baseball fan. I like baseball. I played baseball as a young man, mainly because it wasn't football season, but I played baseball and I enjoyed it. But it was a remarkable to watch Aaron Judge, the slugger for the New York Yankees, to uh, break the record for the number of home runs hit by Roger Maris if you throw out the guys that hit all the bombs during the steroid era. And this is the at-bat, this is the swing, and this is the ball that left the park at a high rate of speed. He is a huge individual. In fact, he was adopted by two Christians who've raised him. Uh, Aaron loves the Lord. He's a committed Christian. And his mother and father raised him and took him in and loved him. And he was made a man's man. And what he can do with a baseball bat and the, gener the baseball bat speed that he generates is unbelievable. And this year, a lot of things lined up. He wasn't injured. He was seeing the ball well. And he hit a lot of home runs. And when you see that, you naturally are drawn to him, this unbelievable athlete, this specimen of a man who can do something that most of us will never be able to do, and certainly we would never be able to do at a home run setting record. But what caught me was not Aaron Judge, it wasn't the catcher, it wasn't the umpire. If you'll look behind him, you'll see some people watching it through the screen of their phone. I circled them for you. That's about the extent of my technology right there. That was it. And I don't even want to tell you how long it took me to get those circles the way I wanted. <laughs> now, if you watched it at home, you probably watched it on a flat screen TV. Probably. If you didn't, tell your wife you need one for Christmas. They're pretty affordable now. But you probably watched it on a flat screen TV. And you probably watched it in high definition. And as good as it was for you, and like most of us, you probably watched a replay of it. I did not see it happen live. I can't, I don't have the patience to watch an entire baseball game. But, but if you gave me the choice between watching the replay on SportsCenter or watching a replay on my phone or sitting in the front row seat a few feet behind the catcher, anybody who has any love for sports would say, I'd love to be there live. And then you'd say something like this. Not only would I like to be there live, I'd like to see it with my own eyes. Those people didn't see it with their own eyes. They watched it through their phone. And you may say, yeah, but they videoed it in order to prove they were there. Well, what does that matter? It's already been videoed. You can watch it in a better video than the video they made. They missed it even though it was right in front of them. Now, I realize sometimes you run the risk of making too many sports analogies. Mamas, let me talk about you for just a moment. You'll miss the pumpkin patch for trying to take pictures of the kid at the pumpkin patch. And this is the picture you'll end up with. <laughs> Somebody who's smarter than you will charge you $25 to walk in their pasture and pick a pumpkin they put there before you got there. And you will get there. I drove by a pumpkin patch here near our, in our neighborhood the other day, and it was a whole line of people. And all it was was mamas running around with a camera trying to get that picture, right? And I understand that. And I realize the pictures mean a great deal. And as a parent of six, I have taken plenty of pictures, and most of them have not turned out the way I wanted them to. But it perfectly illustrates that sometimes we can get so consumed with either creating a memory 
we forget to make the memory, are so consumed with a product we want to post, we forget to enjoy the whole reason we went to the cotton pick and pumpkin patch. There is something about being fully present that is powerful. That's what Paul speaks about this morning. Now, he dives off of the subject of marriage because in Corinth, folk weren't living right. Some were wanting out of their marriage. Some were wanting in a marriage. Some were wanting to change their social status. And before I go into the text, let me just say that goals and aspirations and dreams and social change are not a bad thing. In fact, it is Christ in us that often pushes us to become better men and better women and want to be more faithful in the lives that we live. So there is a place for that. But we can become either so defined by yesterday or so consumed with tomorrow, we forget that the Lord has given us today. And today is where we should be fully present. In fact, this is where we ought to remain. Dream, sure. Think, yes. Plan, you ought to. But you're redeemed to remain. To remain in the moment that God has placed you in. Now let me show you the passage this morning and how it teaches that. I'll begin in God's holy word in verse 17 of the 7th chapter of 1 Corinthians. Only let each person, so every one of you is addressed in this passage, let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. So this is not just for Corinth. This is for church at the mill this morning. Paul goes on to say, was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Those would be the Jews. Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Those would be the Gentiles, the, the pagans, the Greeks, the Romans. Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one, notice again, we hear this each one. This is a very individual applied passage. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. Now, Paul's not advocating for being a bondservant or a slave. Look what he says in the parentheses there. Your modern-day translation probably has it in parentheses. It's in the text. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of that opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who was a free who was free when called as a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become a bondservant of men. Look, look, verse 24. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. I don't know that I've ever preached a message like this. I remember when I began to unpack this passage of Scripture, I was actually studying it on an airplane, and it taught me that every leader, and certainly those who want to lead out with vision, knows that one of the roles of a man or a woman in a position of leadership is to put a picture of where we're going in front of the people. A few weeks ago, I did a vision series, just two weeks, where we talked about our future and where we're going. 
and, and whether you're motivating a little league team or you're talking to your child about studying for an assignment or you're trying to manage folks at your place of work, whenever you are leading people, it is important, it is necessary, and it matters to motivate them about where they ought to go. And of course, the Bible is filled with that. But we do cross the line of sin when we become so anxious about where we think we need to be, we live dissatisfied in the moment God has called us to. There's a difference between sinful complacency and biblical contentment. I want to challenge you to evaluate the power of your presence. Now, the way this passage falls out, it's really as easy as one, two, three. There's only one principle in the passage, but it permeates the text. In fact, if you were listening to me read or you read along with me, you'll notice that in verse 17, in verse 20, and in verse 24, Paul almost verbatim repeats himself. Let's look at those three verses very quickly. Once again, look at verse 17. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Now drop your eyes down to verse 20. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Now look at verse 24. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain. But notice the prepositional phrase, with God. So, so God is more concerned about you being with him in your today than you fulfilling your dreams for tomorrow. Because to be with God is to have the ability to live today fully aware of the challenges and the opportunities and fully present in the moment. Now, this idea of remaining and abiding is bigger than just 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Remember what Jesus said to the disciples just before his arrest? He says, abide in me. Another way you can translate that in the English language from the original Koine Greek is remain in me. Some modern translations use the word remain. Stay, sit, be, plant yourself. Now, here Jesus is not talking about a geographic location. Rather, Jesus is talking about a spiritual location. Abide in me and I in you. This was the newness of the gospel. If you read the Old Testament, people were seeking the Lord and at times the Lord would set his presence down. The Lord dwelt in his Shekinah glory in the inner holy of holies, in the tabernacle and then in the temple. But to be in the presence of God was revered and it could not be predicted. But once the barrier between man and God was lifted by the death and resurrection of Jesus, by the full payment of sin, then a man or a woman could live in Christ as Christ lived in the man or the woman. And so Jesus, knowing he's about to go accomplish his work on the cross, says, abide in me and I in you. And he uses a simple plant metaphor. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. And John 15 fleshes this out fully. We've preached that passage many times. But to remain, now if we were to apply that to today, to remain in the Lord is the key to fully being in the present. To not be so consumed with the unknown realities of tomorrow 
are so burdened with the failure and challenges of yesterday that we miss the blessing of today. This is the principle, to remain. Now again, why is Paul writing this to Corinth? Because he's sensing in the church, not in the world now, in the church there is this anxiousness about wanting more. I want a better wife. I want a better husband. I want a bigger home. I want more money. I want to live out the dreams social media posts say my friends are living when it's all a facade anyway. And what happens is, is that this dissatisfaction of today and with today begins to rob our joy. And then we lose our mission and our vision. One of the things I talk about a lot with our team and with my children is the most important person in your life. You say, well, Pastor, you, you're going to say the most important person in your life is the Lord. Well, that's true theologically, but if you'll allow me for just a moment, you'd say, oh, well, okay, if you're not talking about the Lord, then the most important human in your life, if you're married, would be your spouse. I get that. I understand what you're saying biblically. I can defend that. But, but, but actually, I might push back just a moment. You say, oh, well, maybe it's your children. Again, certainly no one that means to me more in, in a parental capacity than the relationship I have with my children. But if we press the theology of what I'm preaching this morning, allow me this. The most important person in my life in any given moment is the person God has placed in front of me. My wife is serving right now in our special needs ministry. She's not in the service right now. What can I do in her absence? Well, I can honor my vow, and I can pray for her. But I'm not omnipotent. I'm not omnipresent. I'm not omniscient. I'm not in all places at all times. I'm not all-knowing, and I have no spiritual power to reach into her life back there in that back hallway. I can pray for her, and the God of heaven can hear my prayer, and he can bless her and protect her as a result of my prayers, but I cannot do it. In fact, I can do nothing for a human being not in my presence. But if you're in my presence, I can speak to you with kindness. I can meet a need. If I'm in your presence, you can minister to me. You can serve me. You can be kind to me. So one of the most powerful ways to make the most of today is to recognize that the most important person in your life is whoever God has placed in front of you in the moment. And all of a sudden, it changes how you view strangers how you view folks that wait on you, how you view people in places of business that you frequent, all of a sudden you recognize that the theology of today affects the way in which you treat people. This is what Paul is getting at. And Paul says, remain in the place God has called you until God calls you to another place. So this one principle, Paul offers two illustrations. Now the interesting thing about the illustrations, one is religious, and one is social. Church folk understand that. We have religious ceremony in our life, outward acts of obedience. You just saw the testimony of brothers and sisters in the Lord, some adults, some children, who have professed Christ. That's not a thing powerful about the water we put in the baptismal pool. It's the same water out of the water line you drink from a water fountain. The power is in the act the ceremony of obedience because it outwardly represents what we by faith as a church has affirmed through the testimony of the believer that has taken place inside of their heart. 
Well, in the Old Testament, if you think about baptism, an Old Testament believer would have thought about the mark of circumcision. In fact, one of the things that we recognize is that baptisms, in essence, is the new act of outwardly marking yourself with water to depict the burial and the resurrection of Jesus and the burial and resurrection of the believer in Jesus, the washing away of the old and the renewing of the new. So Paul, in dealing with a church that would have had Jews and Gentiles, would have, would have had people who had been circumcised and lived according to the law to the best of their ability and would have had people who had no measure of connection to the Jewish tradition. Paul, in recognizing that could create, create tension, dealt with this in several of his churches. The most pronounced one was his struggle with the churches in Galatia where people called the Judaizers came into the church and said, yes, Jesus is the Messiah, but to truly have Jesus, you must first become a Jew. Well, a man or a woman cannot change their ethnicity. They, don't, they cannot change the pigment of their skin. They cannot change the culture they were raised in. But they can conform to the culture. And so there were Judaizers demanding that these people obey the law in order to have Jesus. Well, that's not the gospel because Jesus says, I came to fulfill the law. All the law is fulfilled in him. So to receive and obey and honor him is to receive the full fulfillment of God's law. And so Paul launches into a religious illustration. Look what the Bible says in verse 18. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. And then Paul clarifies. And I cannot, in words, in a very brief sermon, illustrate to you how powerful and counterculture this would have been coming from Paul, a devout Jew who got miraculously saved. He says, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Now, verse 19 might be confusing because you might say, well, isn't circumcision a commandment of God? There's a distinction here in the passage. The distinction comes around how God, through Paul, communicates obeying the commands of God. The commandments of God he's talking about here are the commandments of God in and around the gospel. The gospel is a command on our life. If you want to be saved, you must be born again. There's a command there. There's no way around it. It is not a suggestion. God has not offered it as one of many spiritual ways. He has made it very clear. To love and follow the Lord Jesus is access to new spiritual life. In fact, Christ never missed an opportunity to connect our love and adoration of Christ, of him, to obeying and following him. It does not mean, and you know this, we clarify this often, that we obey the Lord to earn his love. No, 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 no. We obey the Lord in reaction to the great love he has shown us. One of the great evidences of being born again is you have a desire to honor the Lord. You know I often say it this way. When you are saved, you have a forward lean to obey the king. You want to honor him. And that's why you feel so convicted when you don't honor him. 
when I sin against the Lord, when I feel or express anger, when I deal with a lustful thought, when I have a short word to someone near to me, when I make a mistake that is intentional, when I sin against the Lord, I am not fulfilled. There's no joy in that. It does not fulfill. It leaves me convicted because I'm acting against the new nature of Christ that has been placed in us. This is what Paul's trying to get to. In fact, in the book of Romans, he talks about circumcision of the heart. He says, for no one is a Jew who is merely outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. Now, that, that is really a play on words. Circumcision is outward, and it is physical. But he's saying, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Paul knew that any religious activity could be completely twisted and you could become more obedient to the outward mark or the ceremony than the God you say the mark or the ceremony represents. This is why to deal with the Judaizers, Paul says in Galatians, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. When I preach that passage, I always call that the verse of a triple homicide. Jesus died, and when he died, I died to caring about what the world thinks, and I don't care if the world dies thinking about me. He says, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision. And I love how Paul says it to the Galatian believers. But a new creation to be made alive in Christ. Now drop that into the day. If I'm born again, as many of you are, if you're not saved, if you've never trusted Christ, it's not complex, it's not to be confusing it can't be cheapened. We don't give the gospel out irresponsibly. It requires your full devotion. But when you receive Christ into your life, the Bible says you are a new creation. So that means your yesterday's forgiven and your tomorrow is secure even though you have no guarantee where your tomorrow will be spent. One of three things could happen tomorrow. You could live tomorrow like you lived last Monday. The Lord could come back tomorrow or you could be called to be with him. One of those three things is going to happen tomorrow. Either way, when you're saved, you're secure in all those. Whether you die unexpectedly, whether the Lord returns in all of his glory, or whether you're allowed to live tomorrow, God's already there. He's got it. What that means is God is most concerned with what I do with today. And me living according to his definition of myself in this moment. But then Paul leaves the world of religion and goes to the social setting. About one-third of the Roman Empire were considered bond servants or slaves. Typically, when we, rightfully so, think of slavery, we think of the atrocity of our nation, our own nation's history of slavery. We recognize that the truth of the gospel penetrating through powerful men and women was a significant force in abolishing slavery. We also recognize that people wrongly twisted and manipulated scripture to defend the heinous social injustice of slavery. In Paul's day, there was certainly wrong versions of evil and twisted slavery. There were also bond-servant relationships where a person who was in a tremendous amount of debt 
would sell themselves into being a bondservant in order to pay a debt. There were other times when slaves were allowed to be educated and to manage businesses. And so to be in Rome in the first century was to meet all kinds of people, and slavery was not based on race in Rome, but to meet all kinds of people, some would have been bondservants, some would have been free. Paul's not advocating to remain a slave. What he is saying is that no matter what the world calls you, you define yourself by what the king calls you. Which is why he says, beginning in verse 20, each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. In other words, don't be overwhelmed with fighting more against the situation you're in than fighting for the gospel. Now, Paul's not advocating in remaining in a social injustice situation, which is why he says in verse 21, were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. If you're able to buy your freedom, if society changes, take advantage of it. When given the opportunity, advocate for your freedom. Use your freedom to honor the Lord. What Paul is mostly concerned about is that you don't allow your social status to define how you see yourself. Now, what's the other end of the spectrum? If you are a bondservant, you may say, well, I'm saved, I'm following Jesus, and yet I'll never fulfill God's will for my life because here I am, I do not have my freedom. Paul says, no, 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 no. God is completely in control of your situation, and he can bring the full extent of his glory through you in your life, no matter your status in society. But the other end of the spectrum would be if you are a free man or woman, you may arrogantly think somehow your freedom qualifies you or characterizes you as a better version of a Christian. Now, with that in your mind, look what he says beginning in verse 22. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. If the world says you're a bondservant, remember you're free in Christ. If the world says you're free, remember you belong to the Lord. Allow your definition in the gospel to be the greatest characteristic of your life. Now drop that into the day. You know how you and I mistreat people? We mistreat people when we forget they're just as valuable as we are. We mistreat people when we become so consumed with where we think we ought to be we forget that if we're alive today, God has a plan to use us in the moment we find ourselves in. There is no desire within the gospel for you not to have dreams and aspirations to better yourself. But God is making it very clear that he is more concerned with your faithfulness today than your dreams for tomorrow or the definitions of your past. Now, following these two illustrations, I would just like to conclude with three very simple lessons. I told you one, two, three, pretty simple guy. The key word is to remain. So based on the full testimony of this passage, the first thing I would suggest is you remain when you remain content in his control. Look at verse 17 again. Only each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned him. Wherever you are in your life right now is not a mistake or a surprise to God. 
It doesn't mean that your own choices cannot affect your status. If you live a life of crime, eventually it will catch up to you. If you live a life of treating people faithful and good, eventually blessings will come to you. So there is a relationship between the choices we make and the life we live. All of us know that as parents. We teach our children the relationship between their choices and the outcome and the consequences of their choices. But you and I know that in the midst of even making good and right choices, the rain falls on the just and the unjust. And in those moments when tragedy or sorrow hits our lives, we have to rest in his control. I may not be settled in my situation, but I'm settled in my Savior. And so I trust in his control. If he calls me to celebrate, I celebrate a Savior who's good and kind. If he calls me to suffer, I suffer under a Savior who has suffered more than I can ever imagine to relieve me of my suffering one day eternally. I'm settled in him. And then that leads to the second lesson. You remain committed to his commandments. You know, years ago, we all got those rubber bracelets. WWJD. What would Jesus do? There's actually a beauty to that thought. If you're like me and your mind never stops running, my mind's always thinking. I'd be driving down the road. I'd say, Laura, what you thinking about? My wife would say, nothing. How can you not think about something? I'm always thinking about something. She says, okay, I'm thinking about sleeping. <laughs> That's what she does. If I ever get to take her away, she just sleeps. Oh, this is a nice place. I hope we have a nice place. <laughs> All right, I'm going to go find a coffee shop. I'll sit and study, and she sleeps. That's her love language. She's been tired. She's tired. She hasn't slept. I'm like, well, how I many kids? 19 years. She hasn't slept. She's tired. That's her love language. She sleeps. My mind's all, I'm always thinking. I'm always thinking, right? You can get yourself so worked up in the complexities of life, you forget. God has not called you to figure out tomorrow. He's not given you any control over yesterday. Obey him today. Do the next righteous act of obedience. Whatever that may be, do that. And then finally, that leads to that third lesson. Remain concerned with his call. You, you want a better job? Great. But where's God called you today? I thought about this, and I, I, I want to be careful to allow the Holy Spirit to apply this into your life as he sees fit. But when you take those lessons and you look at the larger context of 1 Corinthians 7, you, you, you end up thinking about it in relationship to things like marriage and singleness and money and job and community. So let, let me flesh those out for you. It's really about rebelling or remaining. Here's how you rebel in your marriage. I want a divorce and or a different spouse. I'm not happy anymore. A lot of times people say, doesn't God want me to be happy? And I remind you that God certainly provides joy in our life, but I don't have any biblical precedence that says your happiness is his priority. His glory is his priority. But you are most joyful when he's most glorified in your life. Happiness is fleeting. Remaining in your marriage is something like this. I praise God for the person he's given me, but I want a different marriage where we are stronger together and more devoted to one another and Christ. You can want a different marriage. You can't want a different spouse. What about those of you who are single? 
Well, if you rebelled in your singleness, it looks like this. I hate being single. I want to be with someone. Until I am, I don't think I'll feel complete, loved, and valued. I'm incomplete until I have somebody. I bounce from one relationship to another. Let me show you how to remain in your singleness. While I desire marriage, I trust God's timing and provision. The best thing I can do to prepare for a future relationship is to flourish now in Christ. What about the subject of your job? Some of you do your best praising on Sunday and your worst witnessing on Monday. I don't like my job and I can't stand going to work. I don't like the people I work for and I do it only because I love my family and I need money to support them. I'm counting the days until I find a better career. And I just tell you, I would not want to sit next to you at work. Now, let me tell you how to remain in your job based on this passage. I'm grateful for my job and the ability to work. I want to be a blessing to my employer and the people I serve so that if a new opportunity comes, I'm most prepared because I've been faithful in my current role. You be faithful today, God will open doors for tomorrow. You bitter about today, if you were God, why would you give you a better job? You're not doing too hot with the one you got. When much is given, much is expected, and Jesus said, if I can trust you with a little, I'll trust you with a lot. What about your wealth, your money? I want and need more money. I'm convinced that most of my headaches would disappear if I could just achieve a measure of wealth that others seem to have. Until then, I'll just enjoy what I can today and pay for it later. This is the gospel of money today in our world. Now, how do you remain in your wealth? Everything I own and the money I earn are gifts from God. It's not mine. He knows my needs and even my wants. Sure, there are some things I'd like to do financially, but my first commitment is to grow more generous should more wealth come into my life. Finally, where you live. I cannot wait to get out of this dorm, apartment, mobile home, or neighborhood. I've lived in all of those, by the way. I want more, bigger, better, and newer. My neighbors are annoying, and I get tired of seeing others around me living in much nicer homes. Now, let me explain how you remain in your neighborhood. There are seven and a half billion people in the world, and God could have placed anyone he wanted to on my street, in my neighborhood, or in my community, but he put me here. The people I live and work beside are the most important reason I'm where I am. I may not live here forever, but as long as God has me here, the people here will be a greater priority than my future dreams. Flourish where you're planted remain in today. Would you bow your head with me? The power of being fully present is not your own sheer willpower. You can't grit your teeth and ball up your fist and just decide you're going to produce contentment. No, 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 no. The power of being fully present is recognizing that if you know the Lord, you are in the presence fully of Him. The greatest reality about your presence is not where you are, it's who you are with. The very last phrase of the last verse of this passage says, remain with 
God. You need to be reminded that when you have a relationship with the Lord, surely the presence of the Lord is in this place. What place, pastor? The altar? The church? My daily devotion? No. Wherever you are, He is. He has promised, I'll not leave you nor forsake you. Because of the gospel, I'll go before you, I'm behind you, I'm under you, I'm over you, and due to the shed blood that I gave for you on Calvary, I am in you, and you are in me. So as you reflect for just a moment with your head bowed and your eyes closed, I do not want you to become lazy or complacent. God did not bring you here this morning to squash your dreams. you need to become more consumed with today than you are worried about tomorrow. You need to be reminded today that surely the presence of the Lord is in this place. Sit and pray in this truth for the next few moments.